Welcome to Revelation Ancient Prophecy. This series is a detailed, in-depth study of the book of Revelation. You will discover just how relevant to our day the prophecies of Revelation really are. Here is your presenter, Pastor Baron Neustraten. Good evening to all of you. Wonderful to, uh, to have you on board again as we uh, are going to continue, of course, with the book of Revelation. And I hope there's a blessing. I know, in fact, there will be a blessing in it for you. Shall we just bow our heads and, and pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit? Heavenly Father, we pray for your Spirit to be amongst us. As we open your word, listen to your word, as it instructs us and guides us, help us to understand it, to retain it, and that it may be a guide for our lives. Give us hope for the near future and help us to look forward to the coming of Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Revelation, ancient prophecy, a brilliant roadmap for today. We talked about the sea beast, and we connected the sea beast with the papacy. That is not a particular person. That is not this current pope. That is, even though he may be a Jesuit, which are renowned for organizing uh, themselves and uh, we, we got to be realistic. What we are dealing with here is not individuals, but what we really are dealing with is an institution. An institution that unfortunately has been used by the opposition. And so we have the sea beast identified as the papacy. Every reformer saw it that way. Then we have the land beast, and that's very remarkable. The land beast becomes the, um, the false prophet, if you like. It becomes the spokesperson on behalf of the sea beast. And as the, the Bible already alludes to that, and we discussed that last week, there is an emphasis on worship, a particular issue of worship. And the, the land beast here, which we primarily identified as America, will do the bidding of the first beast, namely the papacy. And you would say, oh, that's unlikely. And I appreciate that. But here it is. Here it is. There is, the Bible says, just before the return of Jesus, there is an unforced worship and there is an unholy alliance between state and church, which is really the image of the beast because that's how it used to be in the past throughout the ages, the Middle Ages, when there was so much persecution. And of course, we're dealing also with the mark. And the mark is an enforcement of an issue of worship, which you could, and we will look at that again tonight, uh, will be an issue, of course, of the Seventh-day Sabbath. We'll come to that. And the number of his name, and the two are equated. And so we have a history here. In June, in 1982, this particular photograph was taken, and it shows Ronald Reagan with the late Pope John Paul II. You know, the demise of the Soviet Union, I think it'd be fair to say, was also due to a collaboration between Reagan, representing America, and Pope John Paul II, obviously representing Rome. Do you remember November the 9th? Maybe you don't. 1989, 1989. 
The Berlin Wall came down. Boy, do I remember that. 1989, the Berlin Wall came down. That was a tremendous relief and an incredible. People were celebrating. Finally, a people that were separated for so long, which they never should have been, were reunited by the removal of this wall. And it, of course, indicated the collapse of the USSR, the United Soviet Socialist Republics. And uh, that was dissolved in 1991 by, by Boris Yeltsin, and you remember him, and, and, and maybe Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev. Oh, I remember it well. Fascinating times, fascinating. And here we have again a fulfillment that this entity, this power, which we, which we put on par at the time with the United States of America, that the Soviet Union more or less fell apart. And the only superpower that we have at the end time, right now, is the United States of America. Now, I know China is important too, but there is a huge gap between America and its capacity financially and militarily and of course China. And so the land beast, the land beast, fascinating. So we talk about the beast and the false prophet. And then on the other side, we have the minority of God's church, the end time church, the end time church that has to deal uh, with this final conflict. They are recognized, they are recognized as the people of God who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. And such they are really a remnant church. A remnant church is a church that kept all the commandments initially there at the apostolic church. Right at the end time, the Bible says there is going to be a movement that is going to do exactly the same thing. Keep the commandments, all the commandments of God. And we know, because it's mentioned here, there's a contrast between most of the world, those who follow the beast, and those who follow God's precepts. And so that's crystal clear. Now we come to the next chapter. And it says here in chapter 14, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, notice, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now he sees, he's looking up. He's looking up and he's looking into heaven. Now the lamb here is Christ. So now he paints a picture of what he sees there in heaven. And note what he sees. And with him, the lamb, with Christ, we have 144,000. Now you remember these were mentioned there in the, uh, the tribes of Israel in the seventh chapter. And so, and so he sees them having the Father's name. And I wonder if you could put that right there. Having the Father's name written on their forehead. The Father's name, the Father's character, their foreheads, their intellect, their decision making. Now who are they that John sees right here at the beginning of chapter 14 that he sees already in heaven? Have a look. I heard a voice from heaven, and a voice of many waters, like the voice of a loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpers playing, and they sang, that's the 144,000, as it were, a new song, a new song, before the throne, before the four living creatures. You remember those, seraphim or cherubim, very high order of angels, 
and know them, the elders. Remember the 24 elders, the representatives of other worlds, and no one could learn, oh, this is interesting, no one could learn that song except the 144,000. Why are they the only ones who could learn that song? Let me tell you why. They went through an experience so profound, and having gone through that experience, they are able to give expression to it and learning that song. And that is what the Bible means here. Have a look at this. They were redeemed from the earth, not from the grave. They were redeemed from the earth. I'm going to put it to you that these 144,000, as I already alluded to before, the, these are the end-time people who are alive who are alive when Jesus returns and they are loyal to him and have been loyal to him and they are the more or less the first fruit redeemed of the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women. Now you got to understand, women here means churches. For they are virgins. In other words, they are not connected with the church other than the truth. And these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men. So when Jesus returns, there will be people alive on this earth. And you've got to understand, you've got to understand that these are the ones that are redeemed from those who were alive. And of course, you can wonder what happened to the rest that saw it the wrong way. Them being the first fruit to God and to the Lamb, to Jesus, to Christ. And in their mouth was found no deceit. They were without fault before the throne of God. That is quite a statement. They go through a brief period when there is no intercession and they're so focused on their surrender and following of the Lamb. You could say they're just about without sin because their mind is preoccupied by being right with God and doing His will. And that is a very good way to be. There was no deceit in them at all. So, who are the 144,000? Well, we go back to chapter 7. They were sealed. Sealed. It's an important qualification on their foreheads. Remember, the name of His Father on their foreheads. They think they act, they desire, they live the way God wants them to live. And so, by the seal of the living God, you find it in the second verse, that is what they were sealed with. Now, the foreheads is an intelligent understanding of the spiritual truth. That is what they were sealed with. The sealed of Israel, of course, are spiritual Israel. You and I understand that at the end time. That is what it means. If you consider this, the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day. Now, the Hebrew word sachar means uh, remembering, acting upon it. So it is an intellectual decision and realization. It is indeed reflecting the forehead. And so, remember, which also in the Hebrew means to act upon, if you like, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You and I can see that the seal of God is about worship. That is what it is about. 
It is about worship. There's no question about that. When we look ahead a little bit and we go to the 15th chapter, we get a very interesting scenario there as well. Firstly, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, and seven angels having the seven last plagues. Now that clearly is reserved for those who deserve the punishment, for in them the wrath of God is complete. In other words, that's not mixed with mercy. And uh, it must be a terrible punishment indeed. And that is uh, assigned to those who have chosen the wrong side. Those, the Apostle Paul puts it so well. He says, of those who have not received the love for the truth. They receive the truth, but not the love for the truth. Because, he says, they had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now look at this. I saw something like the sea of glass mingled with fire. He now looks at the other side, if you like. Mingled with fire and those who have, uh, I'd like you to notice, have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and one more qualification, over the number of his name. Now that is fascinating. So we have a people in heaven who have come through that last portion of earth history and have suffered, of course, from the brief but very profound persecution that found place when they lost every civil right, let alone spiritual right, according to uh, the rulers of this earth. That must have been extremely... Can you imagine the rejection? But here it is. You know, that could be us. Because Jesus' coming is very, very soon. Standing on the sea of glass, they are saved. And that is, that is the promise, having the harps of God. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God. Now, you remember that they got through the Red Sea and they stood on the other side and they observed the destruction of their enemies. Yes, you remember that. That's the Exodus. And so the question that arises here is the Sabbath, the seal of God. Now, it's interesting when you look at this. Look, look at it. So you get the name. You get the name. The Lord your God. The title, what he is, the creator. The territory, heaven and earth, all that there is, because he made everything. So yes, the seventh day Sabbath is the seal, but it is a sign of a wider understanding, an intellectual comprehension and acceptance of the full truth of God. So that is what it is a sign of. The Sabbath is a sign of a relationship between you and God. The seal of God the token or sign of his authority, which you fully accept over your life, is found in the fourth commandment. And so it is. And you know something? The counterfeit, the Sunday, of course, will not be acceptable to God. A counterfeit always follows the original. The original was the seventh-day Sabbath. The counterfeit is always coming later 
and that's the first day of the week. Let's have a look at this again. I know I mentioned this a few times, but you need to know. You need to understand that this is a very serious business. In a book called Face of Our Fathers, and I've noted the page number here, 561, Cardinal Gibbons, an eminent Roman Catholic prelate, he was the head of the uh, American uh, portion of the Catholic Church. The scriptures, he said, enforce the religious observance of Saturday. Notice, you may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, but you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. How clear is that? This comes straight from the Roman Catholic Church. And he's absolutely right in what he says. Notice, notice. He says, and he's right here too, if the Bible is the only guide for the Christian, yeah, then the Seventh-day Adventist is right in observing Saturday with the Jew. Is it not strange, he goes on to say, that those who make the Bible their only teacher should inconsistently follow in this matter the traditions of what? Or the traditions of the Catholic Church. What is he saying? He is saying if you are consequent to the scriptures, to the Bible, the word of God, you keep a seventh day Sabbath. Because the first day of the week is a tradition of the Roman Catholic Church. And that's exactly how it is. He was right in saying this. In fact, you go to the Converts Catechism, we mentioned that last week. The question, which is the Sabbath day, is correctly answered. Saturday is the Sabbath day, which begs the question, why do we observe Sunday instead of the Sabbath? And the answer, the answer you already know, because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. Could it be any clearer? Could it be any clearer? And this is an issue. And it will be an issue, I'll put it to you. And so, one more statement of a collection of Prompta Bibliotheca, and the volume is Papa II, by Lucius Ferreris, which is really, uh, Ferreris is an, an official Catholic doctrine. The Pope is so great an authority, oh, you listen to this language, the Pope is so great an authority and power that he can modify, explain, or interpret divine law. Meaning, you can't, but he can. That's not biblical. It reminds me of the little horn power of the book of Daniel. Go to the book of Daniel, that seventh chapter, talking about this little horn power, and shall intend to change the times and the law. Intend to think, assume it has the authority to change, to change the times and the law. Now they changed the law by doing away with the second, that's the one about the images and bowing down, but the one that is going to be significant more than any other one is the day of worship, a seventh day Sabbath or a first day of the week, full Sabbath. And here you have it. It is the sign of the authority of the power of the papacy who can modify according to their doctrine. 
an incredible understanding that is so incorrect. Now, what is God's response to all of this? Well, really, the three angels' message of Revelation 14, the verses 6 to 12. Have a look at this. God has a remnant church, no doubt about it. And in fact, you know, God would always warn his people. He does. You go to Amos chapter 3, verse 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret, his intent, his secret, to his servants, the prophet. He revealed it to John, who put it in writing, and here we are today. we blessed to have it, because it is a revelation of God to John, but it is a revelation, of course, from God, from Jesus himself. Earth's final warning message. Let's look at the first angel. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, heaven, the everlasting gospel. So that's the gospel that's always been around from the very beginning, straight after the fall. And then, of course, it goes over into the New Testament post-Calvary, the everlasting gospel. To preach to those who dwell on the earth, that's everybody on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Have you, do you remember chapter 10 of the book of Revelation, when there is a commission that has to go worldwide as expressed to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people? That's interesting. Saying with a loud voice, with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come, or you could translate it, is come. So that message, when it goes out, then the hour of his judgment has come. Not will be coming, has come. I want you to remember this. Now, we can place a date on this, and we will do so. 1844, because we talked about that. 1844, that is when the pre-advent investigative judgment in heaven began. You recall that. The anti-typical Yom Kippur. Note the rest of this. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now that points to a creator. Now here is something, two things I want to share with you. 1844. Do you know the Charles Darwin completed the manuscript of the origin of species and the uh, descent of man in 1844? Isn't that interesting? He published it 15 years later, and he had to be talked into it. But the complete work was there in 1844. Interesting. Because the Sabbath day is really a memorial day to creation as well. That's fascinating. Here's another thing you should know. Roman Catholicism, official doctrine, accepts evolution. It does. Theistic evolution is its belief. The Pope himself gave expression to his belief in the Big Bang, and that has been done by a number of popes a number of times. Google it and you'll find it. That's interesting. That's interesting. So if you don't believe in a six-day creation, you don't need a seventh-day Sabbath, do you? And what does that make of the rest of Scripture? Come to think of it, 
Jesus who gave expression to the belief and the understanding that the creation was real and accounted for in Genesis 1. If he was wrong, who was he? The Son of God? Can you see the enormity of the problem? If you don't accept the Bible as the word of God, authoritative, correct and historical. Huge problems. Can I remind you of this little exercise? We did this two weeks ago. The 2,300 years, remember that? That was cut off, so explicitly pointed in the Hebrew, cut off. 457 BC, the starting date, the, the seventh year of Artaxerxes Longimanus, a probationary time of the Jews being cut off from the beginning, which culminates then in 34 AD. And if you take the 450 of the 2,300 years, bearing in mind there's no year zero, you come, of course, to the completion of this 1844, because that is how the Millerites, the Advent movement, computed, calculated, the cleansing of the sanctuary, which they believed, which they believed, as you well remember as well, which they believed, and William Miller, he preached that, they believed it to be, it to be the cleansing of this earth. They didn't get as far as to understand about the cleansing of the sanctuary, the heavenly sanctuary, as a necessity, as a process that was foreshadowed in the earthly sanctuary by the Yom Kippur. A correct calculation, but a wrong interpretation. The last datable prophecy, namely 1844, if you like, October, the Yom Kippur of the day, 22nd, is the last datable prophecy that we have. But time still goes on. It's not the end of time. But there was a bitter disappointment because Jesus did not come back. And we talked about that. You also remember that John, in chapter 10, already alluded to this. The angel, which is Christ, he says, you must prophesy what? Again. He had done so before. There was, it was a sweet exercise. But the disappointment was very bitter when it appeared they had it wrong. And so, and so there is a commission to the people whom are now represented here by John that there should be a prophesying again after the great disappointment about many people or too many people, nations, tongues, and kings. That's interesting. Now, after the bittersweet experience. So the angel, the first angel, has a message which pertains to that judgment we talk about. And that judgment has started because the hour of his judgment is come, has come. You've got to understand the language here. Very important. We get that correct. So Earth's final warning message. Let's go to the second angel's message. I mustn't forget about that. Because it's an important message. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. The repetition is really emphasis. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Babylon is the organization of false religion. Erroneous. Apostatized. That great city often depicted as a great city because he has made all nations, these are the secular authorities, drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. 
drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Her fornication is the illicit relationship between state and church because the church is married to Christ and should not have another husband. Should not have another husband. And so the wine of the wrath, and this invokes the wrath of God, of course. Now, there's a third angel's message, and that's a real sobering warning. Have a look at this. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worshipped the beast, anyone, anyone, doesn't matter who you are, if anyone worships the beast, note the language, and his image, state and church, and receives his mark. And I'm going to put it to you that this is the spurious, the false first day of the week Sabbath instead of the seventh day Sabbath day because that is a sign not just about that one day. It is a sign of your whole relationship with God. Who has your loyalty? And receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand. The forehead is conviction, so you'll do it on the hand. Well... You just go it along, you comply. Either way, he or she herself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. The wine here is doctrine, but it is a false doctrine. It is misrepresenting God. None of us like to be misrepresented. Why would God not mind being misrepresented? who is poured out, which is poured out on full strength in the cup of his indignation. So there is going to be a judgment that is executional. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb who has come, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. In the Greek, Ionius means for, for a season, for a while, until it's completely consumed, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, there's a very clear warning. This is not eternal hellfire. The Bible uses the term, it'll, smoke will go up forever and ever. Uh, it talks about Edom burning, the book of Isaiah, forever. Well, it doesn't burn today. Jerusalem would burn forever. Well, it's not today. So it's really an expression to say that the effect will be forever, but the process to establish that fact is, of course, temporary, and I'll show you in a minute from some other Bible text. Here is the patient of the saints. So you have the one group that goes the wrong way. And then we come back to the patience or the perseverance of the saints. Here are those who keep, there you have it again, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That is heaven's qualification of God's people. And I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write Right, he says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. That is in the time of the message of the third angels, the warning that is given. Those who are loyal to God, who, who die before there is a close of probation. Yes, says the Spirit, that they might rest from their labors and notice, and their works will follow them. Their good works will show fruits. And uh, they will be blessed. They will be blessed. Now there are two harvests that we deal with. There were two harvests always in the Jewish and in the Israelite agriculture. 
Well, maybe three. There was the barley harvest to which the Passover is connected. It's the barley harvest. And then, of course, you have the wheat harvest about a month later in the spring, northern hemisphere. And then in the autumn, <coughs> pardon me, in the autumn you have the, the harvest of the grapes. And uh, so that was the second harvest, if you like. Then I looked and behold, note what he says here, a white cloud. A white cloud is billions of angels in a distance that look like a cloud. And he says, and on the cloud, coming with the clouds, on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. This is Jesus. Having on his head a golden crown. He is now a ruler over his people. This is obviously after the conclusion of the pre-Advent investigative judgment in heaven. On his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Ah, that's interesting. It is harvest, after all. In fact, another angel came out of the temple, because the temple is where the investigative judgment found place. He comes out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sit on the cloud, that's, that's Jesus himself, who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. That's it, it's ripe. It needs to be harvested. Remember Jesus saying this, I always think of this, Matthew 13, verse 39. The enemy, Satan, who sowed them, that's the, the tars, is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. That's the end of this world's history. That is at the second coming. And the reapers are the angels. Magnificent scenes. I ponder upon this sometimes. Would I see the dead being raised? Him come on this cloud. The tremendous upheavals, knowing that it will not affect me. All the upheavals of the earth's crust, horrendous what will find place. But I'll be saved through it. You will be saved through it, if you're loyal to him. And so, let's look at the other one. So he who sat on the cloud, thrust in his sickle in the earth, and the earth was reaped. And so now we have another angel uh, come, came out of the temple, which is in heaven. Um, we also, he also having a sharp sickle. This is an angel. This is not Christ. Another angel came out from the altar. That's the altar of intercession, because it's in heaven. The altar of sacrifice is, of course, was on the earth, Calvary who had power over fire. The identity of the angel is an angel that has power over fire. Let's have a look and see what we can remember. In the 8th chapter, verse 5, then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar. Now the altar that he takes the fire from is the altar of incense, the heavenly one. He throws it to the earth. Now you've got to bear in mind that in the earthly sanctuary, the fire on the altar of incense always came from the altar of sacrifice. It means the merits of Christ were to be represented and was represented by the incense that was mixed there with the prayers of the saints 
at the altar of intercession in the sanctuary, and in this case, the heavenly sanctuary. Of course, this is very spiritually symbolic. The angel took the censer filled with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth, and there were noises, thundering, lightnings, and an earthquake. That's the second coming. Imagine the tremendous upheavals. Going back to Revelation 14. This angel who had the power over the fire, he cried out with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of the vine of the earth and her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Is this an allusion to the seven last plagues, which we will deal with, actually next week? Interesting, you should know about these. Or is it maybe an ultimate judgment that finds place in a little over a thousand years from now? The winepress, note the language, was trampled outside the city. Might this be outside the heavenly Jerusalem when it comes on the surface of this planet a little over a thousand years from now. The blood came off the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs, and that's approximately 300 kilometers. Now, what does that mean? Well, firstly, it is amazing if you look at the descriptions about the second about the second harvest, the one that is separated from the first. Could this represent the second resurrection? But where do I fit in the 1,600 furlongs, which when you calculate it, is about 300 kilometers? I can't say I have ever, and as an omission, omission, there is a, a I have to say, I have never found a satisfactory explanation other than to say that what we're dealing with here is symbolic. It is very symbolic. It indicates an enormous quantity of perishing of people. And I can't begin to describe. You know, Sometimes I wonder why we have to be for a thousand years in heaven. Oh, we will be learning so much. We'll be learning so much about God. And we'll get all the answers to the questions why those whom we thought who should have been saved were not saved. It's about the justice of God. We look at God. Was God merciful and just? And we will learn that there were so many that God simply couldn't save because they didn't want to be saved. I'm not saying they wanted to perish, but they were not willing to be saved. And here we have a description of a mass execution, if you like, which still, and that would take a lot of understanding, is an act of love committed by God. Why? God does not want rebellion ever to happen again. This whole great controversy is happening. So throughout eternity, limitless ages, 
there will be no further, no further rebellion and no more pain, sorrow, death and all the things that you and I are familiar with. Reaping the grapes of wrath. Have a look at the book of Malachi. The destruction of the wicked. Have a look at this. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. Malachi is 400, about 420 BC. He wrote this. And all the proud, yes, all those who do wickedly will be what? Stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up. Solidly burned up. Totally, says the Lord of hosts that will leave him neither root nor branch. Now the root of all evil is Satan. He won't be there ultimately anymore either. And all those who followed him, the branches. Now note this. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. Interesting. They return to the elements from which they ultimately came. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Will God cause a destruction? Yes, he will. When the sinner clings to the sin and sin has to be destroyed, so will the sinner be. When our people, the founding fathers of our church, saw this, and they studied the third angel's message and the importance of earth's final warning message, it dawned on the Advent believers more and more, it dawned on them, they came to realize that it was a message for the world and that it was to be proclaimed before many people, nations, tongues, and kings. And that's how we came into being. We are a movement with a mission, a commission, that God has entrusted to us. And we know that God is in control. Always. So next week, next week, you don't want to miss the presentation of the seven last plagues. But you will want to miss out on the seven last plagues as far as the reception is concerned. It'll be a good study. Again, you know you may have heard things that you think, boy, this is all incredible. It is, isn't it? But like I said, like the Bible teaches, God is in control. God does not lie to you. He does not uh, tell you something that's not quite true. The word of God is 100% accurate. And we do well, we do well to heed it. We do well to internalize it. We do well to live by it. And that's the invitation to you. May God bless you. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, it is a lot that we have to take in. And Lord, some of it is so hard to accept, so hard to fathom, so hard to understand. But we know that we have been studying your word. We have allowed your word to be its own interpreter. And Lord, we thank you for the warnings that you give us and the commission that goes with it, that we should warn the world. Lord, help us to be faithful in this. Bless each and every person here. Keep them safe. Keep them well. Be with their work, their endeavors, their studies, 
their thinking, their loved ones, and bring us together again, we pray, for further study from your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Revelation Ancient Prophecy with Pastor Baron Neustraten, brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio. For more information on this series, visit waitarachurch.org.au. family sang Trust in the Lord Forever. Up next, the Neblet family will sing The Pen is Yours. The sun is rising, the day is new. A child is stirring in heaven's view. Turning the chapter starts, it has 
no title, no written marks. The road behind you is just a start, and God, your Father, says from his heart, I promise every need tomorrow, I provide it for today. The way you choose to walk with me will do more than I can say to bring you in possession of the gifts I want to lay. The page is open, the pen is yours. Recall I've spoken. I've opened doors, I've opened doors. Sometimes it's easy to see his hand, to sense his pleasure, do his command. bright go from your knees to walk in the light there is no limit there is no end there are no barriers for God has said I promise every need tomorrow Welcome to God's Favourite Shepherds, 
a collection of 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters, with many of the stories ending with a short quiz. Listen now to the author of God's Favoured Shepherds, Bill Ackland. The story I would like to share with you today is entitled The Giant Slayer, a giant in Israel, and the story is based on Numbers chapter 13, 14 and 32, Joshua 14 and 15, and Judges chapter 1. I was only a boy when we left Egypt over 40 years ago. What a story I could tell of everything that happened to us before and after we left the land of our slavery, plagues upon Egypt, miracles for Israel, rebellion, idolatry, and we almost entered Canaan, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, as God described it. Then came the time when the spies returned and cowardice won the day. Another 39 years of tramping through an unending wilderness instead of enjoying the lush fruits of Canaan. I had heard of Caleb even before we arrived at the wilderness of Paran. He was one of the leaders of the tribe of Judah, a man who was greatly respected and could always be depended upon. God spoke to Moses, telling him to choose 12 men, one from each tribe, leaders of the people, to go through the land of Canaan and to bring back a full, full report of all they had seen, not forgetting to bring some of the fruit with them as a sample of the produce of the land. Sadly, when they returned, only two men gave a positive report, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Joshua was Moses' valuable assistant. The other ten spies said that while the land was itself was luxurious, the people were giants living in high-walled cities and had chariots of iron. It would be impossible for the men of Israel to defeat them and drive them out of their land, they said. As a boy, my eyes caught sight of the massive bunch of grapes they brought back, so big that it took two men to carry it on a pole. Even though Caleb did everything he could to counter the negative report of the ten spies, the people had been stirred into such an emotional state that they grumbled and complained against Moses and Aaron. They even said they wanted to choose another leader who would take them back to Egypt. I couldn't believe what I heard. Go back to Egypt? To a life of slavery again? As a result of this latest rebellion, God told the people through Moses that everyone from 20 years of age and older would die in the wilderness as they wandered around day after day for another 39 years. Only those who were then under 20 years of age would enter the promised land. There were to be only two exceptions to this, Caleb and Joshua. When all these years came and went, we arrived at the borders of the Promised Land again. I was now that much older, but still young enough to carve out a good life for myself and my family in the lush land God had promised to our great patriarch Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. Five years later, after many battles and victories, only possible because God was with us, Caleb approached Joshua concerning the promise Moses had given him 
of the land that was to be his when Canaan was divided among the people. Caleb said that even though he was now 85 years of age, he was still as strong as he was when he was 40, and that Moses had promised the land that Caleb had spied out would be his. So give me this land, he said, and the Lord will give me victory over those people, and Hebron will be my city. Joshua did not hesitate to give him what Caleb requested. He knew it was the Lord's will, as he had heard Moses promise to Caleb those many years ago. So this great man of God assembled a force of valiant men and routed the land of the Anakim, those giants that lived in the hill country. Sheshai, Ahaman and Talmai, sons of Anak, giants and great warriors were driven out of their land. From there, Caleb and his men went to Kerjath Sepha, later named Deber, and he promised his daughter Aksar to the man who led the assault on this city, gaining the victory over these people. It was Othniel, a younger brother of Caleb, who stepped up to the mark and gained the victory and was given Aksar to be his wife. Not long after Caleb and his extended family and some others settled down in the area known as Hebron, his daughter Aksar made the journey from the land her forefather had given her to the Negev to make a request of Caleb. She dismounted from her donkey, but before she could say anything, Caleb asked her what she had come to see him about. She replied that she had come to ask of him a great blessing. Please give me some springs of water in that dry land of the south. Caleb was happy to grant his daughter her request, and in his fatherly generosity gave her not one, but two springs. One is known as the upper springs, and the other the lower springs. It is here that my story ends, for I am on my own land now, and my life is full as I manage my land and care for my growing family. But I am sure that God will bless Caleb and his descendants with many sons and daughters. They will be a tower of strength to Israel if they follow the example of their forefather. Caleb was truly a man of God. You've been listening to God's Favoured Shepherds, a book with 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters. If you have any comments or questions, or to obtain a copy of this book, give us a call within Australia on 02-4973-3456 or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. We'd love to hear from you. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.